The first book that I got to read this year was called The Intentional Father by John Tyson. He's a preacher up in New York City, and it's specifically about how Christian fathers should raise their sons, but many of the principles are applicable to mothers and also raising daughters, and I was just so inspired by his work as I read it, and one of my favorite sections was about the different decades of your life, and he writes to his son, the 20s are for growing, your 30s are for editing, the 40s are for mastering, the 50s are for harvesting, the 60s are about guiding, your 70s are about imparting, your 80s are about savoring, and then he wrote, your 90s are about preparing to reach the finish line. Okay, of course, not everybody reaches all of those decades. Life isn't under our control. And yes, life isn't always a smooth up and to the right trajectory. But I really appreciated this pastor and father writing to his son this way because he had seen something that I've observed in my own life. And he writes this. Without this kind of trajectory with a direction in your life, he says, many of us find ourselves moving through life without any idea of where we should be or what we should be doing. We end up in disordered chronologies. Now, he doesn't mean disordered as in unstable. He means without structure or direction. He says this chronological confusion in life can lead to deep regret and aimlessness. We'll easily drift from season to season, and that is a recipe for getting lost. So instead of that life, he proposes a life to his son with a life with different steps headed in a single direction. Now, we're in the middle of a new series called A Very Short Introduction. And so far, we've looked at the lives of the Apostle Paul and, excuse me, the Apostle Peter and the High Priest Aaron. And we can't see their whole lives. We just have to do a, a short introduction to them. But today, we're going to look at a character who doesn't know where he's going. He is in the middle of a life of a disordered chronology. He doesn't actually realize where his trajectory is leading him. This man actually starts off strong, but he doesn't finish well. Like Tyson says, he doesn't prepare to reach the finish line. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably don't like this Bible character. You may have been taught about him before, and you've been taught that he's a bad man, even a wicked character in Scripture. But his life actually doesn't begin that way. The fact that he doesn't finish well often colors our perception of the rest of his life. So this sermon is important to correct some of that misperception, but also it's important for each and every one of us because there is an immense temptation as a Christian to spiritually coast through life. Let me say this again. We are tempted to spiritually coast through life. I've seen this temptation in the lives of really good Christian men and women. Perhaps they've raised their, their kids and their kids have launched really well into adulthood and maybe they've got great jobs and they go to church and they're committed believers. And then from then on, their parents think, mission accomplished. I'm done. So for the rest of my spiritual journey, I'm in autopilot. There's a really great temptation to do this. You can live off the maybe faithful successes of your past. But I think this is a temptation we have to resist because Satan 
loves the word coast because he'll turn our coasting into drifting and then he'll turn our drifting into disaster. I know a lot of Christian friends of mine who are in their 20s who've seen their mother or father or maybe even grandparents take this spiritual turn for the worse because they were coasting passively instead of driving proactively. And no matter what age, what age we are, whether we're 20 or 50 or 80 or 100, we're never immune to this temptation. Now, I think the second reason this sermon is so important is because this church has to resist this temptation as well. We're entering into an important discernment process, asking where God wants us to go. And we might think, well, we don't want to do anything drastic. We don't want to do anything too intense. But if God is calling us to act drastically for the sake of his kingdom, then coasting is the equivalent of disobedience. Coasting is not just a temptation for individuals, it's a, it's a temptation for churches, and not just for this church, for every church on the planet. So we have to see where this man Saul went wrong. And by seeing where he went wrong, I think we can ask God to help us take a different route, a different direction. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, and maybe you're watching online today, you may not know much about King Saul, I think that actually might help you understand his story better. Because his whole story is contained in the book of 1 Samuel. We divide up two books about the prophet Samuel into 1 and 2 Samuel. And there's a whole era leading up to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel called the era of the judges. And this era is filled with violence and anarchy and corruption. And we read this line over and over in the book of Judges, which is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Now, in the book of 1 Samuel, because of that problem, they go to God and ask him for a king. And there's nothing wrong with desiring a king, right? We have a king in Jesus Christ. But they wanted a king to replace God. They wanted a king instead of God. They wanted a king, a human king, in spite of God. Now, God, in his mercy, listens to their request and actually gives it to them. But he says... I'm actually not going to let y'all pick your king. I'm going to pick your king. And the first king he picks is Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, again, if you know some of his story, you may not believe this, but these are some of the first descript descriptors of King Saul. King Saul was impressive, without equal, a head taller than anyone else. This is some of the first description we get of him. This is not a loser. This is not someone who you think, oh, this guy is doomed to fail. The very first story we read about him is when his father loses some donkeys. He tells Saul to go on a search for these donkeys. And what's the first thing Saul does? He obeys his father. He drops everything he's doing and obeys. When God is speaking to the prophet Samuel, he says this last quote, he will deliver. He's talking about Saul. He will deliver my people from the Philistines, their enemies. In chapter 9, when Samuel tells Saul for the first time that he's going to become king, this man says, am I not from the least clan within the smallest tribe? He doesn't even believe that he's going to be king at first because he's humble. He doesn't say, oh, of course I'll be king. I'm the perfect man for the job. He says, I'm from the smallest clan within the smallest tribe. There's no reason to pick me. 
So he's impressive, he's without equal, he's going to deliver God's people, and he's humble. We have every reason to believe at the beginning of his story that he has great makings for a king. In chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, the Lord anoints Saul. We heard that read this morning. This is what happens in that anointing. God changes Saul's heart. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. He actually starts to prophesy. This is someone we think ought to be a great king. And he isn't cowardly either. When the very first threat against the kingdom of Israel comes his way, Saul rescues the city of Jabesh. He's a deliverer. He's a prophet. He's impressive. He's without equal. He's humble. We think the story should go well from here. But he faces his very first challenge while waiting on the edge of a battlefield. Now Samuel, the prophet, has told Saul to wait. Don't go into battle until after I perform a sacrifice. We're going to worship God, and then you're going to go battle for God's people. That's what Samuel tells King Saul. Now, it was really important that Samuel, not anyone else, perform that sacrifice. Now, for a lot of us modern Christians, we don't really understand why it's such a big deal that Samuel do this and not Saul, why it couldn't be him. But even if you're not a Christian, you probably understand why it makes sense to divide power and authority among different roles. And that's the exact way God did it in his kingdom. Some people were prophets, some pre people could offer sacrifices, and some people were kings. But he didn't always mix them. The problem is that Saul gets impatient. He waits day after day after day, and Samuel hasn't arrived on Saul's timeline. Saul starts to see some of his men abandon their post. He gets worried. He feels impatient. And so he just says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to offer this sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice anyways. And Samuel was going to do it whenever he shows up. It'll be fine. Now Samuel arrives on the scene and sees what Saul is doing, confronts him about it. And I honestly think that the bigger mistake for Saul is what he says in response to Samuel's rebuke. He says, Look, Samuel, when, when I saw that my men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that our enemies, the Philistines, were assembling, you know, what I, I thought was, well, now the Philistines are going to come against me. They're going to fight me, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor yet. And listen to those words at the bottom. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. In other words, I can be excused from what God commanded me because my men were leaving and you, Samuel, were late and our enemies were at our doorstep. It's everyone else's fault, according to Saul. Now, after he gives this excuse, the prophet Samuel gives Saul the bad news. And you got to listen to these words. If you don't hear anything else, listen to this. Samuel says to Saul, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you if you had. Those three words are very important. If you had kept the command, God would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. If you know anything about the Bible, just think about how, how different the Bible would be if Saul had obeyed that one command. Jesus probably wouldn't have been the descendant of King David. He would have been the descendant of King Saul. But Saul's kingdom is cut off, and so a new kingdom has to begin at this very critical moment, King Saul could have repented. He could have said, I'm sorry. He could have changed his life, 
change the direction of his life. This could have been a stumble on an otherwise fantastic kingdom. But in reality, Saul just starts digging his own grave from here on out. And I think some of us think that God's punishment is cruel or unjust, but the path of Saul's destruction is long. I've been studying First and Second Samuel with one of the students over at LFC named Osvaldo. Man, it's 28 chapters long. That's just First Samuel. And his whole life unravels at this point. God doesn't strike him down with one failure. This isn't one isolated incident. Saul's whole life is this continual descent into more disobedience. We see this trajectory happen over the course of the book. Years later, Saul and the rest of his soldiers are facing Goliath, the famous enemy. And, and remember, Saul is supposed to be a deliverer from the Philistines. But what does he do? He sits in his tent and he's scared of Goliath. And he doesn't even pray to God for help against him. Instead, he sends out a teenager named David to fight Goliath for him. And when David wins that battle, guess what Saul does? He isn't celebrating David. Oh, thank you so much for being so brave and courageous and faithful to God. Saul is jealous. He can't believe this kid did what he couldn't do. Now, Saul believes that you should keep your enemies close, and so he hires David onto his court for his kingdom, and, but it just gets worse. The jealousy deepens. He tries to kill David. This is the guy who saved Saul's reputation. And so over and over again, David will be in his court, and Saul tries to kill him in, the front, in, in front of everyone. He doesn't care. At one point, Saul's threats to David get so intense that Saul's own son, Jonathan, helps David get away from Saul. And in one of Saul's worst moments, he calls his own son, Jonathan, to him and calls his own son the son of a whore. This is the selfish, pitiful, jealous man that Saul has become. He's insulting his own son and his own wife just because he hates David? Now, so far, he hasn't killed anybody. It's mostly threats at this point. And he still could have turned this trajectory around, but he's in a disordered chronology, right? He doesn't have a long view of his life. He, it, he just has the passions of the present. All he wants is David dead, David dead. But he doesn't even know what he wants after that. He's aimless. And he, he's therefore very pliable to temptation. And he descends even further. The the trajectory just gets worse. King Saul finds out that some priests have been kind to David. He executes these priests. Over 80 priests die just because they've helped his enemy. And it gets worse. He continues to hunt David. He's never successful. David is merciful to him, even though David has multiple opportunities to kill Saul. But Saul can't see anything else. It's all he wants. All he wants is to kill David. And because of that, he leaves his own city, his own people, defenseless. At the end of his reign, Saul gets tangled up in this battle, and it's got really bad odds. And he has the audacity to go to God and ask, God, will you give me victory? If you've read the whole book of 1 Samuel, you can understand why God sees no obligation to let Saul know about the future. And what does Saul do? He doesn't accept God's silence. He doesn't repent. He goes and finds a witch. This is in the Bible. We just had it read out loud. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 28. 
he employs demonic forces to make a dead Israelite prophet talk to him. He won't accept God's silence, so he's just going to try and force Samuel to speak from the grave. And inevitably, Saul goes outgunned into this battle. He takes his two sons with him. They lose the battle. Both of his sons die, and Saul takes his life rather than be captured by the enemy. That's how Saul's story ends. Now, I know that it's unfair to put someone's life on a line graph. I know that. But the trajectory of his life begins well. He had all the makings of a good king. But he set down this path that started with one sin and just a few excuses. And when God decided to make someone else king, well, Saul didn't like that decision. And so he becomes jealous and he, and he can't see anything else other than what's right in front of him, the desire to kill David. Instead of being the prophet that he once was, he goes and seeks the help of a witch. Now, it's my firm theological conviction that Saul could have repented anywhere along this ark. I don't think God forces Saul to sin. And the reason why I have that conviction is because there is another Saul in the New Testament who actually has a very similar trajectory. The Saul in the New Testament has a very promising career as a Pharisee. He's an up-and-coming student of God's Word. And he takes a really dark turn by persecuting the first Christians. But Christ appears to him, and what does that Saul do? He repents, and he turns his life around. King Saul and the Apostle Saul actually have a lot in common. They have an initial rise... Their trajectory goes downhill, but the Apostle Saul ends up with a very different life. King Saul has no direction towards God, no aim of pleasing the Lord, and so his drift just becomes disaster. Now, wherever you are in the course of your life, we all need to look at Saul's life as a big, glaring warning. Spiritual complacency is a ripe opportunity for the enemy. When you just say, I'm okay with where I am right now spiritually, that is an opportunity for the enemy. As a minister, I see this happen with older ministers, and it's honestly very scary. I hear stories about older ministers who've, got, who've had incredible ministries earlier on in their life, and they just started to coast into very dark places. And some of these ministers just refuse to finish well, and it just ruins so much of the impact they make on their church. I was thinking about this week, thinking about this topic this week, and I just, I kept thinking of how Eddie Sharp is so much different than all of this, and how well he finished God's call here at this church. I mean, if you want an example of preparing to reach the finish line, it is Eddie Sharp. I don't know how much y'all know about this, but, you know, I was really afraid coming here because we had about four months of overlap, and any young preacher will tell you they've heard nightmare stories about overlapping with the previous preacher. You don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what they're going to say about you. And Eddie and I had these four months of overlap. In the very first week I was here, Eddie 
emptied his entire office and he brought me into the he brought me into the hallway and he showed me the 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 empty office and he said this is yours this is yours he moved upstairs to a closet on the third story and he wasn't coasting he was passing the baton onto me and he was making sure he was proactive about finishing well He's just such an inspiration because he, he made sure that he wasn't coasting at the end. He was being proactive about transitioning, helping me begin. That's what he chose to do. I think there's a huge temptation for us to kind of retire from faith, to call it quits, to be okay with what we've done in the past and kind of let that lead us into the future. But none of us are called to retire I think now that we've entered this discernment process about our future, I think this, this truth from Scripture is so important. We have to resist the temptation to coast, to go on spiritual autopilot. The question that really drives this whole series is, can men and women really change? And for some of these characters, we've seen the answer is yes, and they've changed for the better. God has made them holier. But the sad answer for this week is yes, but for the worse. We see Saul take this spiritual nosedive. And it's because he, he, he had no aim. He had no goal. He had no direction towards Jesus, towards God. Now, I think some of us might think about this question and think, well, yeah, sure, I want direction. That sounds fantastic. I would love to live with John Tyson's perfectly ordered chronology where every decade goes from editing to maturing to mastering. That sounds fantastic, but that's pretty overwhelming. We really in control of our life that much? No, the answer is no. But I think throughout this week, as I, as I was thinking about this, I thought of two uh, Greek words. Just let me be a nerd for a second because they really help me and I hope that they can bless you. The two Greek words are telos and terminus, okay? Terminus means end, done, stopping points, nothing further. But telos means goal or purpose or meaning or direction. And that means that none of us know our terminus. We don't know whether we're going to live to 30 years old or 90 years old or 130 years old. We don't know our terminus. We don't know our end or stopping point. But our telos is always Christ. What you can do right now is conform your life to his life. Christ is always our direction. So whatever stage you are in life, he is your goal. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, you would be surprised if you knew how soon in life you start to begin to feel the shortness of the tether of how many things, even in the middle of life, we have to say, no more time for that, too late now, not for me. He says, a more Christian attitude, which can be attained at any age, is leaving the future in God's hands. We may as well, for God will certainly retain the future in his hands, whether we leave it to him or not. He says, never, in peacetime or war, commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly, and works from moment to moment as unto the Lord. 
It is our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. Right now is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. Right now, Christ is our direction. We want to conform our lives to him. Saul was aimless. He had no goal. He had no direction towards God. That wasn't in his purview, and so the present was ruined for him. I want to make one last comment, and then uh, we'll end. I was thinking about drawing that silly line graph, and I know that some of us might think, well, that's my trajectory. Maybe you see yourself at the end, the tail end of a lot of bad decisions, and whether or not you're a Christian, you think, well, my life is a wreck, and I don't know how I can turn it around. I feel like I'm doomed to be like Saul. Here's what you need to know if you're worried about the direction of your life. When Christ was crucified, he was executed next to two men. And at the beginning of the crucifixion, both men mocked him. But by the end of the afternoon, one of them had changed his mind. Whatever he saw in Jesus... He decided to stop mocking him, and instead he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, right at the end of this man's life, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is not too late. No matter what trajectory you're on, no matter how many bad decisions you've made, we can always repent and be forgiven of our sins. Ask Jesus to forgive you, and he will. He's full of grace and mercy. There's no repenting sinner beyond his compassion and love. Don't give up. Do not think that your life is doomed to be like Saul's. It's never too late. And for all of us, I think that line that Tyson ended his book with is just so important. He says, prepare to reach the finish line. That's what we need to do as a church, and I believe the Holy Spirit can empower us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we're so tempted by the busyness of life, by maybe past successes, Maybe a strong start to think, well, of course we'll finish well. Of course we'll, we'll continue our trajectory up and to the right. Of course we'll continue to improve. Father, help us to not be spiritually drifting, spiritually coasting, we want to be proactive all of our days. We don't want to follow the same trajectory as Saul. We want to have an aim, a goal, a purpose, and that goal and purpose always be Jesus. Father, if someone is listening to this sermon and they feel hopeless, if they feel like they're doomed to be like Saul, to end like him, I pray that you would instill in them hope that it's not too late, that our Lord is always ready to forgive those who repent. And Father, as a church, I pray that you help us reach the finish line, to not coast, to be proactive, to look to what you want in the future and act on that in the present. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.